Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rival's pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson, scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years, here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step to 53342. New York, call the 24-7 Hope Line at 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Over here from the Woke Bros and Count the Dings family. Uh, we will not be running a brand new episode today for the holiday. However, uh, we're rerunning one of my favorite episodes with Matt Carp of the Jacobin um, he talked to us about the new Gilded Age here in America and abroad. I thought it was one of our more informative conversations. And if you missed it, um, check it out. And if you liked it and, you know what I mean, still want to check it out, check it out again. Uh, we will see you guys next week with a brand new uh, episode. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, peace out from Waz. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of the Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Wozni Lambray, a.k.a. Big Woz, joined as always by my brother, my compadre, out on the west side of Los Angeles, Nando Villa. <laughs> so, man, I'm very, 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 very excited about today's guest. We told you we was going to have somebody special up here. Um, when we took off last week, my man Matt Carp is up here. He's a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine, as well as an associate professor at Princeton University, yeah. y'all. <laughs> Those of you not watching on YouTube, I had to put the pinky up. Um, yeah. you know, he specializes in 19th century U.S. history and politics. My man Matt Carp, welcome to the show. Welcome to Woke Bros, Matt Carp. Oh man, I'm feeling I'm feeling wide awake right now. I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah, have you ever a great, gotten great a better intro? intro? Yeah, have you ever gotten a better one? <laughs> never, never, not once, not once. I'm glad that I wasn't named associate professor of Jacobin. That's <laughs> one thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's taking y'all behind the curtain. Anyway, on today's show, Joe Biden has passed a two trillion dollar stimulus somehow even above Joe Manchin's objections. Um, he's come out with a full-throated support of the unions in America. And, you know, without saying it, um, in Bessemer, Alabama, he's come out just recently. He just tweeted right before this show came on um, in support of the Pros Act, which is like, I don't know, this is the most pro-union sort of rhetoric that we've seen out of the White House and God only knows how long. We're going to get into that. But first, man, before anything, we have to talk about, talk to Matt Carp because he wrote this incredible sprawling piece for Jacobin Magazine. And he talks about how we're about to be in the new Gilded Age. And, you know, the parallels that you draw in the piece, Matt, and, and I, first of all, you did a fantastic job. Like, 
I encourage every single person who's listening to this to go read it yourself because it would be impossible for us to cover every single aspect of that piece. It was so thoroughly written and researched. Um, but first of all, um, Matt, and, and welcome to the show again. I want you to talk to the people about what exactly the Gilded Age was, the original Gilded Age, and why it's so important and instructive. The original Gilded Age, yeah. Well, you know, like we were saying before, there's there's no way to to like hook people onto onto contemporary politics we like a, like a like a <laughs> elaborate analogy to the 1880s, you know, which is as I was saying to some historian friends, like maybe the least viral decade that you can, you can think of. <laughs> Name one thing that happened in the 1880s. I, mean, I challenge you, um, yeah. but it's important because. Look, what the Gilded Age was, I mean, you may have, you know, I don't know, you know, li listeners, viewers, what your what your background is. But I mean, I think the the conventional portrait and, and really the only one that I was trying to evoke in this article, I wasn't going really deep into the nitty gritty of, you know, the political economy of, you know, grain exports and, you know, in, in the in the in, in, in the Great Plains of you know, in the late, in the, in the, in the pre-dustful era. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it was a period of extreme inequality, a period when mm. basically industrial capitalism was on the march. And uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, you know, the age of, of, of rail and coal and steam and large factories were beginning to sprout up. Um, it was an age of, you know, capitalism was in its kind of heroic productive phase in the sense of, you know, transforming the landscape of, of the world. Um, also, obviously an incredibly violent process. It was an age where, you know, global empire and, you know, settler colonial empire in North America was, um, you know, red and tooth and clock, you know, you know, sort of ex expelling Indians, um, seizing land. Um, of course, it was an age in the aftermath of, of, uh, of the Civil War when the achievements of Reconstruction were starting to be rolled back in the South under pressure from, you know, white supremacist violence and as a sort of Republican Party, which had driven a lot of those, you know, great reforms in the Civil War period, became captive to the forces of capital uh, mm. in the Northeast and retreated from its commitment to civil rights, its commitment to anything like, um, you know, worker power in, in the South or the North. So um, it's a reactionary period. And, you know, the, the analogy, I guess, that I was trying to pick at was not just not exactly that we live in that in that spot, because in lots of other ways, you know, if you look at the economic history, for instance, I think our, our era is very different. Like we're not in a, an industrial era in the same way, for one thing. Um, you know, obviously, agriculture was way more important back then than it is now. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of there are a million differences. But the, the one specific thing I was getting at is. This is an era of like, you know, and it, the last thing I should say is, you know, the first stirrings of real mass labor organization were happening in the in the late 19th century, you know, the, the Knights of Labor and early early union trade union movements. Um, but 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 a lot of these violent politics of 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 of, of class and, and and capital, capital versus labor really didn't make it into the political system, you know, the, mm. the electoral system that is Democrats, Republicans. The, the 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 elections were hotly contested in this period. They were feverish. You know, people voted at even higher rates than they vote now. And this last election was the highest turnout we've seen in a hundred years. They voted even at an even higher rate. You know, that is men, because only men were voting in 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 the in the, in the South, only white men. Um, but uh, but but people voted eighty percent clip. And people were hot and bothered and fired up about politics, but none of, because of the way the political system didn't intersect with class politics, none mm. of these big meaty issues about inequality, about mm. the relationship between capital and labor, about workers' rights, none of that stuff um, really, or in fact, any of the key issues out of the Civil War, civil rights, voting rights, none of that stuff ever made it into, um, into the sort of the mainstream of electoral politics. People argued about, Fundamentally, you know, some stuff about the tariff, which was really about regional politics. And then people argued about culture. People argued about culture war, about, you know, one coalition was the product, the Republicans had the Protestants, the native born, the, you know, the Anglo-Saxon and 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 the, the Democrats by and large and, 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 and black voters where they could vote, basically. And the Democrats, the other coalition had the Irish, the Catholic, the mm. uh, the immigrant, and the Southern voters. And mm. those were those were the dividing lines in politics was based on basically that kind of ethnic cultural identity, which became partisan identity. And that drove these collisions. So people were yelling at each other about these kinds of these kinds of issues and the, and the, all of the, the stuff that's happening, the material transformation of mm. the United States 
and the relationship between you know bosses and workers and so on is really left out of that system because both mm. parties are basically amenable to uh, the ruling classes. Anyway, and that I, was long-winded, but. And I think uh. the argument that you're making in the piece is that what you describe as class dealignment being removed from the political discourse, being removed from the fight between the two major parties is precisely what allows for that massive inequality to grow, right? Like for that difference between the average worker and, you know, fucking P.T. Barnum <laughs> to grow, right? Like that, that the, the fact that it's out of the political power that the political power basically is like, no, we're, we're, we're fine with the industrialists doing everything, how they're doing it. And the fights that they want to have, that they decide to have within the political discourse is precisely what allows the inequality to grow. Am I wrong to say that that's the argument you're making? No, that's, that's, that's definitely part of it. That's right on it. I mean, and if you look at another comparison, this is kind of glib, but I mean, it's out there, you know, if you, this is the age of the great, you know, Titans of industry, or if you, you know, as we would call them the robber barons, you know, you know, we have our own versions today, you know, these great industrialists, John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, um, you know, the railroad barons, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Hearst, Hearst, exactly. You know, through to, you know, Andrew (laughs) Mellon, uh, Henry Clay Frick, you know, uh, et cetera, oil, steel, everything. And these guys, you know, to the extent that the Republican Party was the dominant party, mostly of government across this period, it had the slight upper hand over the Republic, over the Democrats, very tightly divided. Most of the industrials were, were Republican, but there were Democrats, too, who were. And when the Democrats were in power, they cozied up with all the great robber barons as well. And, and certain sectors, certain industries that depended on international trade were more Democrat, just like certain sectors you know, are more Democrat now or more Republican now. But the point is, none of none of the parties was proposing any transformative or structural change in the economy. <laughs> yeah. They might propose, oh, we're going to we're going to raise the tariff. We're going to decrease the tariff. We're going to you know, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to we're going to do this currency reform. We're going to do that currency reform. And, you know, OK, I shouldn't gl- gloss over everything. There were populist movements. There were left wing movements. The, the populist, the People's Party, the Populist Party made a real impact and it made a real dent in the 1890s running as a third party. But they were all beaten down, you know, is the truth. And across this long period from, say, the 1880s to the 19 teens, you know, there were, you know, some, you know, some incremental reforms in the progressive era in the early 20th century. But it really wasn't until the New Deal that we saw structural transformation of the political economy of the country, the arrival of a welfare state, the kind of the the rise of a a union movement that 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 was that, 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 you know, could could reset the balance of power between capital and labor to some extent, you know, in the in the in the mid 20th century. And that only came about when there was more class alignment in politics, when basically the working class started voting democratic or at least 70 percent of it not all of it but almost all you know a a huge majority it wasn't a 50 50 split and i think you know that was the uh, that that was the the formula that was the formula in europe too i should add that was the formula in in basically anywhere in the world where there have been social democratic reforms they've been attached to organized labor and a party that generated support from workers um, you know, uh, some of them are real socialist parties. Some of them are workers parties. The Democrats were none of those, but they still had the support of most workers. You know, right. it wasn't a 50 50 split, basically, like it is now. And I think I worry that under our alignment, we can get a lot of things and we'll talk about the things we can get. Um, but I'm worried that we can't really get anything that's going to change the the, the the balance of power. Yeah, so the the traditional understanding of mass politics under democracies that we that we think of is like that there is a coherent um, kind of class basis to them in which like you know the workers working class votes left the bosses middle class whatever party was right they all vote right and mm-hmm. and then that's the fight and in the eighteen in the gilded age, in the first gilded age as in now and you point out just how dramatic it's that's been in the last even 10 years, it's been happening for maybe 30 or 40 years, but in, even in the last 10 years, it's gotten even, even more dramatic. That, yeah. that has changed. And a bunch of kind of richer people in, and, and even, even some very, very wealthy people, um, like, you know, I'm sure Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos vote Democrat, um, have entered into the Democratic Party, whereas uh, 
more and more working class people are going into the Republican Party. And the political fights that we have are not about, are not always about, or not primarily about who gets what in the society. It's about whether we can call Joe Biden, Dr. Joe Biden or not. Is that like kind of the safe, like that? they use those issues in order to divide um, the working class. Um, and then uh, that allows just, that allows the sort of people with power and, and money to just kind of use that division, play the political parties off of each other and, um, and get, and always get what they want. Yeah. I mean, I think that that describes basically national politics, especially, uh, you know, at the campaign election level pretty well, you know, there are a lot of exceptions, but since, especially in the Trump, in the sort of post Obama, uh, Trump era, uh, where, uh, politics became much less, you know, we're more partisan, we're more polarized on partisan lines than ever before. But uh, if you look at the content of the elections and what, you know, these parties stand for and how they appeal to voters, it's not that there are no material appeals. You know, people jumped on me about this and said, oh, you know, Joe Biden talked about he's going to, you know, he's going to, you know, rebuild America. And, you know, da, 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 da. it's not that there is that, that, that there's literally no material politics, but there's very little what I would say, what I would call class politics. There's um, you know, Joe Biden did not, you know, denounce the billionaire class in any way. Right. You know? and, and and for all of the reforms that he promised for, you know, hardworking Americans, which, by the way, Republicans talk about all the time, too. You know, Donald Trump makes those same appeals. Um, you know, there's 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 a there's very there's also the kind of parallel assurance that like nothing will fundamentally change. So mm. there is a, there is a little bit of a um, you know, there's ambiguities here. But I would say that, you know, now to your point, like the 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 main terrain of like what's motivated voters. And this is something that, you know, you know, people who are like lib my liberal critics, people don't like this argument will agree that people aren't really voting their class anymore. They're 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 no. queuing to vote based on culture and based on their what their their values and their kind of identity. Except and, for when they do. Um uh, but, okay. and we'll and we'll yeah. get into okay. that. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. when you talked about you made you made a beautiful point about Biden picking up votes in the Chicago suburbs while also them completely and utterly being opposed to any progressive taxes. But I do want to, because I feel like this will be important to our listeners, because um, I feel like the word class, when we use it, becomes kind of amorphous, because the way me and Nando generally use class here is <laughs> you're either some white collar um, foofy person who went to a nice little school or a school at all. Like Princeton. Maybe you're, <laughs> maybe you're even an associate professor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which makes you, exactly, which makes you an elite. Or um, you're, like, th this is what I'm trying to say. What is the difference between an associate professor at Princeton, and I don't pretend to know how much y'all make over there, and a guy who works in sanitation who makes like $130,000 a year? Are they part of the same class? Because that's when I think things begin to get a little muffled and it's hard to sort of define the classes that way. You feel me? Yeah, well, let me let me put on my associate professor hat and talk about how, you know, as as, as E.P. Thompson was fond of saying, you know, class is a relationship, not a structure. And, you know, anyway, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's just, that kind of stuff, you know, it, he actually has a good point, but 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 you can get very academic and try and understand what the roots of class are. To, so to try to be to try to give my kind of common sense understanding, I do think that um, I think that it's in it's it's always going to be a little bit murky, you know, because it mm. isn't there isn't in, in in the UK, for instance, they do have a kind of a slightly more precise kind of polling system when they they have like you know a1 b1 b2 c1 c you know like based on basically occupation so what kind of occupation have and what kind of sort of social and cultural capital and obviously financial capital is is attached to those jobs so yeah a an associate professor who has a ton of education and is kind of networked in with other kind of cultural elites has both a different is likely to have like different cultural values, but also is likely to have different kind of broader resources to draw That's, on than yes. someone who just happens to like a blue collar person who happens to have a job that where they where they make a good salary. Right. And I'm talking about New York City, because obviously we know in other places people don't make in the hundred G's 
working sanitation, but New York City is a specific place. Like that job is known, like if you come from a neighborhood where I come from, like, yo, you need to be taking that test because that's a good ass freaking job and it's union and you'll have it forever and you get a pension and yada, 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 yada. But I think what you're talking about, um, Matt, is the idea that like, if, if I have the ability to be a professor at Princeton, Theoretically, I could have used that to do something different and get more money if I so wanted to. And that becomes the difference, right? The limiting, um, the, the way you're a little bit more limited when you are not of that elite social strata or class, if you will. <laughs> the, yeah, the mobility yeah. is limited. Mobility options. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, these days, like people who are, you know, uh, you know, frankly, me. If I didn't get this job, I don't really know what I what I would have done because there's a lot of you know useless degrees walking around, and I just happened to like I feel like I got in before the apocalypse, and mm. I have a lot of survivor's guilt about that. Um, but uh, because because there's overproduction of PhDs and blah, blah blah. But the truth is, even these kind of people who some people say are being like declassed or being you know these kind of like professional class people from professional class backgrounds who have great educations, maybe even whose parents are affluent professionals too, but now have these degrees and like, can't really get the job that yeah, they thought they were promised Yeah, they're driving for Uber. They're driving for Uber. So some yeah. of them are actually, and th this is where it gets complicated on the margins. And I don't want to pretend that every single person who has a college degree is not a worker or something like that. Like I don't, I'm not a super militant right. about, about that. It, it sort of definitely depends. Also, there's a big difference between professors and teachers. Like there's a difference between doctors and nurses. Yes, so sir. there are many, many layers to this. And, and then also same thing with, you know, small business people versus, you know, your, your example of a salary of, of a high salary union worker who makes a good wage. There's also the complicated fact of like, okay, what about a small businessman who might only make 70 grand, but like has, has, you know, has to like run his business. He has a different worldview than the union worker. Right. Um, so all these things are complicated. It can't simply be reduced to um, either income or just education. How dare you tell me not to be a class reductionist? What the fuck? Uh, well, you can still reduce. You can still reduce. You can definitely still reduce. But you got to reduce at like multiple layers. You got to reduce right. on, on income, uh, education, and occupation. Some mix of those things all all fit in. And I don't have a formula. There are people smarter people than me, like Eric Owen Wright and some other sociologists have have tried to come up with these like matrices and charts and stuff where you can sort of try to say, okay, this person is fits into this group. I don't know, to be honest, for the sake of this conversation, I don't know how important that is, but I, I mean, it is frustrating how it's murky, but yet at the same time, I do feel a little I like, you know, what, easy to what Bob Dole said about porn, you know, you know it when you, you see know it. when you, you know. see it, exactly. <laughs> and I do want to get back to, cause I think the nitty gritty of, of your article as it pertains to the Dems vis-a-vis -vis what, kind of social and, you know, material changes we can make for the people of this country via the Democratic Party as the instrument to doing so and the things that are going to hamper those efforts. I do want to get into the Barry voter versus yeah. the Biden voter, because I think you illustrated it so beautifully in Michigan, where Barry was kicking ass he kicked ass amongst these allegedly hyper uh, racist blah 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 working class white voters and eight years later hillary couldn't do nothing to save her life with them and the same thing repeated itself with biden and what your piece or what you think that re those results are basically saying about where we stand today as it pertains to the dealignment of class politics um, in America. Yeah, it was really eye-opening going back to those 2008 returns. I mean, to be honest, I wasn't, I, I hadn't really planned to do that, but I was just, you know, there are different arguments about like, okay, this dealignment has been happening since the 1970s because, you know, with the rise of neoliberalism and, you know, since, since, since the union started declining and, you know, deregulation and finance started rising all the way back. And, and that there's, that's true. You know, it's, a, it's definitely a 50 year process where the new deal order started to kind of disintegrate. People couldn't get the jobs they used to get to wages, flatline jobs went overseas. Uh, robots came in and then the Democrats moved to the center, you know, with Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, et cetera. So that's been happening and workers have been moving away ever since. But 
you know, in contrast to people say, okay, this is a grand force of history. It can never be changed. You look at the Obama campaign, which is not that long ago, 2008. I mean, I was, I was around the Phillies won the world series that year. You know, I was in the streets <laughs> both nights, you know, it was, it was, I was sick. I was sick. Man. Both. Yeah. I was sick that when that happened, I'm a miserable <laughs> Mets fan, man. Okay, yeah. I was in Philly at the time. I'm not a Phillies fan, but I was in Philly at the time. And it was, it was like back to back nights. I think it was almost like two weeks later or a week later. And it was like the same party in the streets. Anyway. Um, and oh, if you look at Obama, I mean, this is, this, this process has is long-term, but it's also short-term. And I wanted to check that by looking at Obama. He was a working class president, you know, like yeah. it's like he's such a disappointment in That's office in a lot elected. of ways. Yeah. But but he had a popular movement that would be the envy of any of any leftist running today. No question, you know, in terms of how he he ran ahead of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in Michigan. You know, he ran ahead of, you know, Lyndon Johnson. He won the Upper Peninsula. He won the deindustrializing, you know, old motor city areas. He, you know, he crushed it. He, he you know, turned out black voters in Detroit, like at, at an absurd rate. He had a massive groundswell behind him. And then, yeah, a lot of those, if you look at, you know, Hillary got obviously got, you know, got got wrecked, as you said, with Trump against Trump with that. And Biden was kind of supposed to turn back the clock a little bit. And, you know, in some places he did a little bit better than Hillary. So, you know, I'm not going to say none of that happened, but he he did not turn back the clock. In fact, in some in other places, he did worse to the extent that he yeah. improved on Hillary. It was more in the suburbs. It was yeah. more in the in the nicer parts of the, of the state or places like, you know, Grand Rapids, which is like this up and coming, you know, pharma area or whatever. You know, places where you had a lot of college educated people who used to be Republicans and who didn't vote for Obama, but did vote for Biden. So you're having a switching of the guard here in terms of who is driving this coalition. And I do think, yeah, to your I mean, you said it already, but like I think it makes us especially people who voted Obama twice, of which there were a lot. You know, it makes you say, okay. Like, why do we take these working, this cashier or this truck driver who voted Obama twice, who voted for this black populist? In 2008, at least, he really was a populist. He was a, you know, yes, we can, si se puede, you know, he was, you know, (laughs) we're going to give you health care. He was the only candidate who opposed the war in Iraq, which was like still a kind of controversial thing to do. He, he, He ran as an outsider. And obviously his skin color, his whole identity was like, this guy is not like all these other guys, yep. you know, and yeah. he got a huge amount of the working class who said, Hey, look, we want to change. We want something. We want to change that we can believe in. And, and, and then banana so, in the tailpipe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, and then eight years later, they go with another change and it's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot darker. It's a lot uglier, but why do we think that that is okay? This, this person is a, you know, racist in their DNA. When you look at somebody else, some white voters say in Grand Rapids or in, you know, in Gross Point Blank, you know, outside of, uh, in Gross Point, sorry, that's, you know, that- Great movie, yeah, movie. I was gonna yeah. say, like- Which is a classic <laughs> Michigan suburbs, rich Michigan suburbs movie. Anyway, take a, take a, take, take, take one of those characters in that movie at, who is like, ooh, Obama, I'm not sure about him. You know, like he's, yeah. he's basically not comfortable having Obama come to dinner. And yet then eight years later, he's like, oh, Joe Biden, we need to resist the barbarians at the gate. And that, sure. that guy is not only is he, not suspect in his, you know, racial views. He's seen as the kind of progressive savior against fascism, against white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's a class mix there because it's, you know, you have a, you know, a real estate attorney on one hand who you can kind of like imagine, you know, you know, if you're a, if you're a professional class person, oh, we can talk about this. Well, at least he hates Trump. And then you have, uh, you know, a truck driver or, or, a, or a, you know, a service worker who, who has like no values, no background, no experience in common. And you just naturally assume that their brain has turned into a reptile because right. they voted Trump, you know, right. and it's nuts. And, and I'm happy. Uh, the reason why we wanted you to explain that, which you just so beautifully illustrated um, the, the stark differences and why it's foolhardy to go with that message, because I feel like a lot of people who listen to this show watch a lot of CNN, watch a lot of MSNBC, and what you just described will not be parroted on those networks. Um, no. I'm, I'm sorry, Joanne Reed is just gonna say, those people are deplorable. They, I mean, what, what do you want? You class reductionists never wanna listen. Those white people will never get your little class solidarity message because they're fucking Hitler. Right. And so I just wanted people to he- like hear you so beautifully, yeah. and eloquently articulate the facts. Right. And there's no other way to me, if you're just a reasonably thinking person, that those people 
flipped on the Dems when I'm talking about those working class whites, because we don't have a better way to describe them. Um, they flipped on the Dems because Barry didn't deliver. He didn't. There's no two ways. That, like, there's no other way to view that. Like, because if he did, they'd still be rocking with him. He did not deliver the goods. Their material um, circumstances remained basically exactly the same after this dude sold them on a big game of change. And so, you know, I'm sorry, Nando, you wanted to jump in there? No, I, I think I, I just want to like echo that point because I think in, looking at some of the numbers in your piece, I mean, you say that Biden beat Trump by eight to, t- eight to 11 points amongst voters uh, with incomes under $50,000. Obama won that exact same group of voters by 22 points. Um, it's a crazy swing. Um, and, but like at the same time, which I, and I agree with your premise, like a hundred percent, because my training tells me that, that in order to achieve, you know, sort of meaningful change, you need a kind of a, a, a working class base in, in, in for supporting whomever is in power. Um, but Obama like didn't didn't do that, even though he had the, like you know even though he had the New Deal coalition, he did not deliver on the New Deal. So is he is he a uniquely kind of evil turncoat, or was there something else um, no, that explains no, that's a great it? Point. And people you were know? saying, hey, this just shows because yeah, you could look at that and say, hey, look at look at hey, and then maybe we're gonna get to this next. But like, hey, look, Biden is already delivering in some ways bigger than 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 Obama did. So, and he had you know fewer working class voters. So maybe coalition just doesn't matter. And some people mm. do think that. Um, I, I but think, to be clear, I don't think that. I'm yes, just like no, wondering no, no, what no. the fuck's going on. Like well, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird. I mean, like part uh, look look part of it with Obama is there was a unique situation where people were exhausted with Bush. And, and it was like Katrina and Iraq and this endless slog. And then the economic crisis hits. And then you have this like cranky, totally unappealing, like relic running against him with a, with a crazy lady sidekick. And, you know, that was a disastrous campaign. And so Obama's numbers definitely were like juiced by the moment by the, that it was the, a swing the election. Yeah, that was, yeah, the, and, the, the and McCain I, thing was stupid yeah. because McCain gets elected and he's one of those rhinos that the base doesn't like anyway. Right, right. So it's like, it's not like that anybody yeah. was juiced to vote for him in the first place. No, so so Obama had some tailwinds there. Look, but the truth is he did, He, I mean, he did reverse the, tr- the, the tide of, of this kind of class dealignment, but... Um, you know, he he did. It was kind of an epic <laughs> disappointment. I mean, there's no other right. way to put it based on his campaign, you know, in comparison to his own campaign and and what he promised and and, and wanted to do. And and that I think it's an indictment of the, the 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 ruling philosophy of the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party, unlike Obama, I mean, and, and, and maybe also the limits and what one charismatic person could do, because I don't want to actually put it all on like the unique malfeasance of, of Barack, because because he comes in. I don't think he really challenged the consensus, but the consensus was stronger than him. You know, here's what mm. here's what's reasonable. Here's what you can do. Look, you just got elected as this first black president. Well, you, you better put Goldman Sachs in charge of the money, you know, like and he understood that. And, and like, I understand why he might understand that, even if some part of him and in his memoir now, he's trying to make it seem like, oh, well, I, you know, to be honest, I really wanted to be the left of the possible at every at every possible opportunity. Life. You know, I don't think he was. I think he was just always sort of a centrist in orientation. But to the extent that he did have more progressive impulses, the truth is the centrist consensus in that party at the elite level, the Rahm Emanuel's, the, mm-hmm. you know, the people not leaving aside even the whatever Joe Lieberman and all the assholes in the Senate. I just mean the people literally in his own in the room with him. We're Timothy all, Geithner. Exactly. Geithner, you know, Robert Gates, all these guys, you know, the the, the brain trust of, of of that administration, Larry Summers, they their worldview was still the worldview of basically the 90s. And I do think that is starting to change a little bit now, that worldview. Um, but Obama himself, what that coalition could not overturn that ideological rigidity, I think, of the Democratic Party mm. and all of its, you know, from the top all the way down. And nor did Obama try, you know. Right. Either. And so I want to and, and it's important and it's important that we get into you know, because because I just want to get into the mind of the listener right now, because I'm sure there are people listening like, what's so bad about courting the vote of these upwardly mobile, uh, nice job having college educated suburban voters? Why is that worse than courting? Why is that but not you get better? California? 
Well, so why exactly politics of California? That's why is that like. not yeah. more preferable to courting the vote of Joe Sixpack or God forbid Joe the Plumber? If you guys remember that clown, that's show. a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was one working class hero who did not jump aboard the Obama train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. That's true. He was the ultimate reactionary. He was more of a petty bourgeois anyway. Yeah, All right. big yeah. time. Um, you know, but um. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, look, that's a fair response too. Cause it's like politics about winning. We, we, it's a, it's a, it's a two party system. There's not going to be a pure people. Again, you can, you can kind of, you know, caricature the argument and be like, Oh, you want a pure working class party? Like, you know, like that's never going to happen. You need a cross class. I would love it to happen. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, you need a cross class coalition. Like even the new deal had some wings of capital that was on board with it. You certainly it had some, you know, it had it had some employers, et cetera, et cetera. So so you and if these progressives, if you look at the polling data uh, on a lot of issues, including even some economic issues, they're more progressive than they used to be. They're they're not actually in the mode of, of Bill Clinton. They're willing to do some, you know, they voted for Medicaid extension at the state level, mm. et cetera, et cetera. They're not total flame breathing reactionaries on economics. So mm. you work with them and then you try to do what you can. And that's what, you know, I mean, and that's what a lot of the kind of class conscious progressives in the Democratic Party are trying to do. My problem is it's not, that strategy is not working. It's actually, ex, in the last few years, it's accelerating. It's helping accelerate this yeah. split and this dealignment. Mm -hmm. And it and it's yeah. driving in some ways, it's actually driving, you know, the multi, I hate this phrase, the multiracial working class. Of course it's multiracial. <sighs> anyway, it's driving working class voters away from the party. Um, you know, the, the, under these current, under this current yeah. alignment. So if you, the more you chase and Chuck Schumer said it, I mean, he said that quote that has been repeated a hundred times, you know, for every one voter, you know, blue collar voter in, 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 uh, Western, you know, Pennsylvania. In, in Western Pennsylvania, that's it. In Western Pennsylvania, we're going to get two in the suburbs of Philly. And it's like, they're, they're not, this isn't just happening like as an accident of history. No, like, they're, they're trying to they're do trying it. trying to do this. this. So, so you try to do this, you're actively, that's basically saying we're alienating the vote. We don't give a shit about Western Pennsylvania, you know? And, you know, Joe Biden will say the reverse and, you know, they talk with both out of both sides of their mouth, but what their, what their, what their electoral strategy has been, has been all about courting that, that voter. And I think that yeah. has costs in terms of, basically what the upside of your coalition can do. So well, let's talk about what, what Biden's up to now though, because we should address yes. that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, what do you make, what do you, yeah, what do you make of, of the first month of the Biden presidency? I mean, there's the $2 trillion stimulus um, and there's, you know, some, some rhetorical support for organized labor, which I don't know. I mean, you're the historian. I, I, when's the last time a president spoke about a union campaign? I, I don't, I honestly don't know. Um, the because I, I, Obama certainly didn't. I'm pretty sure, and uh, Clinton definitely didn't. But uh, you know, it just it just I find it kind of. Uh, on the one hand, obviously Biden is just the, you know, he's Biden. We know who he is. Hold on, but, but on the uh, the other hand, we're seeing we're seeing like kind of bigger things from the Democrats than we did under Obama. And and before we move on, I need to address this too because. Again, I, I, I'm very in tune with the with the cynical centrist fucking mode of thinking. And they're going to say, hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal, 
ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. If your fucking shit that you guys are espousing is so great, why didn't your boy, Bernie, get anywhere? If, if his fucking <laughs> ideas are so fucking popular and people want them so fucking bad, why couldn't he kick Joe Biden's ass, who I still maintain ran one of the most cynical campaigns I've ever seen in my life where the guy literally came out for nothing. Um, like people are going to say, well, if that's, if that's what people actually want, why the fuck couldn't Bernie do it? Well, yeah, I mean the Bernie issue, you know, on some level, I mean, this, this costs me a lot to say, but on some level we do have to take that L because, you know, it wasn't as simple as, and now we have some perspective on it. He's not running anymore. You know, it wasn't as simple as the Bernie theory was a little bit like, if you build it, they will come, you know, it was yeah. field of dreams. It was like, the say the world. magic words, <laughs> you know, uh, it's Medicare for all, you know, say the magic words Say you know, the, um, you know, free college, you know, $15 minimum wage, you know, whatever, you know, say the words of these programs and then name the enemy, which was important, the billionaire class, the 1%. And then that those two things will like be a vacuum that sucks workers into vote. And you know what? He did a lot better than the the scoffers thought. You know, he, he made a huge impact. He won, you know, over the course of two years, New Hampshire. Hope Barry Michigan. even had to step in to sabotage. Yeah, exactly. So, Michigan, you know. California, well, a lot of big states in, Nevada. in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously. But um, but no, it wasn't enough. It was not enough. It's it's more work is required to sort of actually or the working class is not organized right now and simply just spouting the words isn't going to organize itself. So it's a longer haul, you know, that that's, that's the hard lump that we have to, we have to take. But I do think part of the reason he lost, I mean, I wrote about this in a previous piece was the nature of the democratic electorate itself is changing rapidly under, under the, under the, like the primary electorate. So yeah. the same voters who went out in, in, in gross point and in grand rapids who went out and voted for Biden against Trump, they're the same people who put Biden over the top against Bernie yeah. because a lot of the old Obama populist voters, they're not even voting in the Democratic primary, primary. anymore. And mm. it wasn't it wasn't enough to just say, OK, Medicare for all. And now you're going to get a Trump voter to. Come right. All and and especially when you got the D by your name and these motherfuckers yeah. haven't delivered exactly. a single outcome for these people. Exactly. So, Why am I getting out my crib for a fucking primary vote? Completely understand that. Um, And so, yes, like as Nando was alluding to, it's, you know, <laughs> and we've been saying it kind of week after week of the Biden administration we've been having to eat crow <laughs> because we sat here and was like oh whoops we were like we folded our arms and was like watch this fucking centrist idiot gas bag do dick all for anybody right we sat here and we said that and we puffed our chests out and and we we tried to sound like we knew what the fuck we were talking about and all the guy has done is is kind of opposite of that like i thought he was going to compromise like he came out initially after his after the inauguration and said i'm coming out with 2 trillion I don't give a fuck what the deficit hawks have to say. I'm going to get the freaking, the the miserable centrist Democrats on board. And I'm passing this shit at $2 trillion. And he did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is what, you know, only 12 years after Barry, you know, these people had to be like, oh, $650 billion. How do we do it? And all of it basically was for fucking Wall Street. So it's like, what do we make of this, this early... Biden administration, man. Yeah, I mean, it's a different era. There's no question about it. And look, and yeah, I, I think we also have to, I don't want to say, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not as brave as you. I'm not, I'm not ready to, to like, to take, take the crow out of the microwave. But <laughs> because I, to be honest, I always thought Biden would do the stimulus. If he gets the pro act in, if he gets the labor act, and we'll talk about that in a minute. If he gets the labor act in, then I will I will dine on Blackbird. Absolutely. Mm. Because I don't think that's gonna happen. That would that mm. would that would really rattle the whole premise of my argument, to be honest, in a big way. If if he gets a, yeah. a huge labor legislation through somehow with this coalition. We'll see. So can you please I'd be happy to be wrong? But on the stimulus, on the stimulus, yeah. Look, yes, there, we're in a different era. And, and you're right, you pinpointed the, the big differences. The size of the thing, it's about twice as big, you know, GDP terms as Obama's. And yeah, no bipartisanship. 
not even, you know, not even the cost of fee for the gambling license, you know, no, right. no deal, nothing, yeah. just take it or leave it. Um, and that's a diff, that's a different democratic party to some extent, but here's, here's two things that are different. The, that are, that are really not about the democratic party. One, it's just a different political environment in the coronavirus. Donald Trump. I mean, I'm not, no, you didn't get, you didn't get a raving media ar- 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 articles about this. Donald Trump did a $3 billion stimulus, you know what I mean? Over the course of 2020, you know, some of it didn't all go to the people. Some of it went to, you know, the banks, but it was like Three, two and a half billion basically did trillion, go. It was trillion, big, trillion. two and a half yeah. trillion did go. So Biden's stimulus is still less than Trump. Tr- Trump got out $2,600 of checks. Biden's only got out 1,400 so far. Mm. So let's let's remember the size, if you're just like dick measuring on the stimulus, like <laughs> we're in a different era where lots of like, so Biden's is bigger than, than Obama's, but smaller than Trump's. I mean, I'm not making that argument, but but that's, but, but, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a different atmosphere. The polls right. are completely different right now than they were in 2008 when Obama came in. You had, I was looking at this because I actually wrote a thing that's gonna come out, I hope like later this week on this. Um, it was about 25% of Republicans were supporting Obama's stimulus. They were already ready to do the Tea Party. They were militant. They were they were fired up. They were like this this like black communist from Ethiopia or wherever I don't know the countries are just got in and we're gonna and we're gonna and he's gonna take all our money and give it to the poor people and it instantly became and the Tea Party emerged on the basis of that stimulus as a kind of rejection of redistributive politics and that's how that's what galvanized the Republicans they they were economically motivated basically to stop this redistribution and that had a chilling effect on the whole Democratic Party because all of a sudden the Republicans are fired up about this. It's not the whole overall stimulus isn't polling that well. And then you have all the Susan Collins. You have I mean, sorry, the the Ben Nelson's and the Joe Lieberman's and all the, you know, the and then the lesser limp dicks like, you know, Chris Coons and, you know, uh, you, whatever, Tom, Tom Carper and all those guys. Yeah, they, 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 they freeze up and then they say, OK, let's do something smaller. That, because that was the national environment. You look at the stimulus now. 70% of Republicans wanted these checks, you know, yep. yeah, 60% of Republicans wanted this bill. So I want, I don't want to take away Biden's mm. credit. He gets mm. credit, but it was easier no, to Matt do Club, it. We brought you on to do this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I easier to do it when you have yeah. the people behind you because Trump's Republican party, this goes back to what we were saying before. Trump's Republican party isn't motivated based on econ- opposition the to economic bootstrap, The bootstrap shit is cooked. It's yeah, over. It's, yeah. it's not that. <laughs> It's, it's all about motivated it's, by it's Dr. Seuss. Dead. It's all about Mr. Potato at a Dr. Yeah, Seuss. Yeah, Mr. Now. Potato. Yeah. And, and we should, and we should, and, and that bears mentioning in the sense that they haven't figured out how to demonize Biden yet. Like with Barry, it was so easy and simple. They just said, look at him. Yeah. Yeah, He's like I saw that their I saw their their <laughs> arguments against the stimulus were like such a throwback to a different era when they were like, look how much they're sending to the NEA, and I'm sure most people are like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, that's not <laughs> like, that's they not kill like, that shit. PBS funding is going up by like. <laughs> $2,000. Oh, God. It's like, that's such a different fucking that's era. From a bygone era. Hello, and, and so th- that does yeah. need bare mentioning. Like, th- like Fox News is, like you said, they're doing Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. They're not just coming at Biden and this idea that he's doing this or he's doing that. Um... Uh, so yeah, and, and they don't they don't they don't get fired up about the about the debt the deficit the, none no, of that that's all I, I went that to a few of these cooked. like uh, yeah the they, Republican senators try to make that argument and you know they're they're a well organized party so they didn't give the stimulus any support because they they're they Mitch McConnell wields the whip but but they did not fight in the way that they could have fought yeah. and they did not fight in the streets they did not there's no grassroots opposition to this because people want their checks. And yeah. that includes the MAGA people. And they yep, even yeah. want the child tax allowance. The big thing that, <laughs> yeah. you know, all the wonks are saying, uh-huh. hey, this is the new American social democracy because, you know, we're going to get a family, a, fa- a child allowance, which is great. I hope we get it. But Republicans beautiful. want that, too. You know, <laughs> Mitt Romney has a bill and the polls say they want that, too. So it's just a different. I mean, you could say this is a benefit of class dealignment is that like everyone's willing to cut checks. You know, that's good. No one's willing to challenge capital, but everyone's willing to cut checks. Right. I love the idea that, I mean, Trump may have changed American politics in in more ways than one, but just sending out those checks that went out in the summer, the $1,200 checks, like may have, may have changed 
like a lot of the calculus <laughs> in American politics, and then people were like, "Oh shit, I need this." Awesome. They, you know, this they is, can do that. They, they can do that. You, <laughs> you know. know? And, and, and but I do want to transition to the Pros Act, um, because you know I, I would love for you guys to expound upon the importance of this. First of all, like, what is the Pros Act? I th- you mean I think it's like wait the Pro Act the Labor yeah, Pro Act. Labor one no no S yeah oh the Pro, the Pro Act, Act. I, yeah. you yeah, know I'm sorry Act. I'm, I'm y- y'all got me thinking about Las Vegas excuse me <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were talking about like the Pros Act like like poetry and prose the Pros like, Act oh, oh yeah. like you, you, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose you know something yeah, like yeah. that yeah <laughs> um, yeah this is a big labor bill that um, that you know the House I think just passed it and passed it's going it to the Senate. And Biden is tweeting on behalf. The truth is, it doesn't have a chance in hell unless they break the filibuster because they're not going to get 10 Republican votes. We'll see. Maybe they can water it down and do some things and get some Republican votes, or they can try to break the filibuster. But Joe, you know, so there's there's a lot of roadblocks ahead of it. But I think that would be a big thing. See, See, for me, coming back to how to make sense of the stimulus, I'm not sold on the people who are like, hey, Joe Biden is doing socialism now. And this shows that the that the, that the Biden coalition can deliver, uh, you know, hmm. real things that will change people's lives um, in, in a way that Obama couldn't. I think he's doing supersized Obama right now. So it's better, but I don't think these checks, they're great. But, you know, in another six months, are, are we going to get another check? I mean, they, that, that money goes. That money just, you know, it melts out of your pocket. And then what happens next year? None of this stuff in this bill is permanent. You know, we'll mm-hmm. see if they're going to extend it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But we don't know yet. So a lot remains to be seen about whether they can get the actual structural things through. The, the PRO Act, which is one, which will, you know, you know basically make it easier to, to organize and, you know, crack down on these gig economy companies and stuff like that, mm-hmm. or uh, whether they get through the Voting Rights Act, that's another one, whether they get through anything on health care, whether they come back to the minimum wage, because we should note that, by the way, that's the one big thing that they didn't get in yeah. this bill, because the, the moderates balked and Biden did not fight on that one. He just rolled over. So uh, those things are all structural things that will actually, like, I would say, give the working class more power as opposed mm-hmm. to just a few more bucks. And that's where I'm skeptical that this coalition will deliver. We'll see. I, I'd love well, to. You eat, know what? I'd love you know what might happen. You. What yeah. might happen is what happened in California. The Pro Act is based off of uh, is like modeled after a piece of legislation in California called AB five, which passed. You know, it fucking passed. And then, um, and it was meant to help organize, especially gig workers in California. And then the gig, the the companies just created a new prop, Prop 22, um, and the voters of California, all who vote Democrat at every single level, uh, you know, of, of the state, and, you know, including the mayors of all the big cities, governor, senators, house, everything, um, the voters of California uh, who are liberals and, you know, all that good stuff, uh, voted to pass Prop 22, which was basically just created all these major exceptions to AB5 to allow the gig co- the gig economy companies to to just continue doing it as it was before AB5 passed. And, and you know, um, just living in LA, it's funny to me um, when you when you're not in California, like there is this 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 marketing of California as this liberal progressive bastion and all of this crap. I'm like, what what is so liberal about? Carcetti or Garcetti. <laughs> Carcetti's from the wire. <laughs> That's good. Of G- yeah. Garcetti or Gavin Newsom. Like, what's so progressive about these cats? Well, like, he absolutely. used to bang, he used to bang Don Jr.'s uh girlfriend. <laughs> Insane and, girlfriend. And then he uh and then Did he banged the staff's wife. Uh, Did you see her great. entrance at CPAC? That was amazing. It's so good. That was that so was good. a talk about. Talk about, I mean, she was ready to, she was ready to, I, I love, that was an NBA worthy entrance, you know, yes, that was yes. like, like or Floyd Way, Mayweather, I, you know, like yeah, we needed a PA <laughs> announcer for her. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, so California is one of the, it's, is it the most unequal state in the union or top yes. three? Is it yeah. the most homelessness in the union? I mean, all this yes. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, it's the nightmare of vote blue, no matter who, right. It's the, it's the sort of nightmare version of your piece of, of the politics of class dealignment and the problem with like 
you know, the, the Democratic Party in California is captured by by real estate interests, by the Disney and by, you know, the Hollywood studios um, and the defense the defense industry that that exists in Southern California. I mean, there's absolutely totally captured. They all Bastions say the right of the words. working man. What are you talking about? Well, they all about? say they all say Black Lives Matter and they all say, like, right. you know, no human beings illegal. But like, um, you know, in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Like you said, very unequal, tons of homelessness. Um, and same in Silicon Valley too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Matt, before we get you out of here, man, um, I, I do want to ask you because, and and I think you kind of got into it just now. The things that you were looking towards, like you said that you know the stimulus is while great, we love it. We're happy people are getting some money, some relief. Like you said, that thing with the every single kid. Like if you have a freak, if you drop a seed this year. You'll be able to get that money, um, and, which is which is which is huge. Yeah, it's still, still time. Everyone, everyone get the fucking still time. <laughs> still time. I just wonder because you know, like the thing in Bessemer, Alabama. But what we did on this show specifically. As soon as it came up, we talked about. Of course, Bernie came out and supported them. Of course. No other freaking prominent Democrat said a word or lifted a finger in support of them. And we mentioned that the president elect had done, you know, dick off for them. And then he comes out and he does a presidential address. And although he doesn't say, yo, fuck Amazon and Bezos and y'all need to unionize and kill these motherfuckers. He didn't do that. But he gave a full throated endorsement of unionizing, period. Like it's the workers right to do this. Nobody should try to intimidate them, et cetera, et cetera. So he came out and did that. I remember that was something me and Nando were saying to look out for. Um, what, what things are you looking out for as it pertains to the Biden administration going forward and, you know, vis-a-vis -vis our, our flaming lefty <laughs> interests? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, that's a good point. And I, I also just want to bring, make you, you what you say brings me back to Nana's question about um, about when's the last time a Democratic president did anything like that? Because it, it's true. It's it's like Joe Biden, like the stimulus. You got a lot of things with the stimulus where it's like this is the biggest anti-poverty bill in a generation. Uh, Bernie said this is the you know the best bill for working families in the modern history of this country. You know, Bernie said that. You know, I, I think. To be honest, that guy was a little far for me. But the, the point is, <laughs> what that says is, what the hell was happening in the last generation? What's been happening yeah. in the modern history of this country? It's been right. garbage for like 50 right. years. Yep. So I agree. I think probably from my reckoning, I don't know the detailed history of what Jimmy Carter said, but I would bet that it's the most pro-union thing anyone has said since the age of Kennedy, Johnson, Hubert Humphrey. Wow. I mean, those guys, even in the 60s, you know, Hubert Humphrey went up and talked about how, you know, scabs will never... You know, he'll, a scab <laughs> yeah. will never support a Democrat. Let's that bring that thing. back. I'm, I'm Let's imagining bring Joe that Biden. Back. Like, listen, yeah. Jack. You know, like yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> back, no, in, had, back in the Delaware, uh, in the Delaware pool, if you were a scab, huh? yeah. I mean, he boy, you know, they would, they would, they would sick those, uh, they would sick a Malaysian man on you in, in like two seconds flat. <laughs> Get that straight razor. You, you let it sit out yeah. in the rainwater for a little while. And then, yeah. yeah. Um, it, but yeah, but I mean, like, so that was that they did. They did do a lot of tough talk in the 60s. That was par for the course because the Democratic Party was the party of labor in the way that it's not. It hasn't been in the last half century. But yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think it is interesting. And I think polls, I mean, I haven't seen specific polls on this. I do think there's a sec section of like the PMC, the professional class, the the, the associate professor professoriate of the world like yeah. me, who are actually more pro-union than professionals and college educated people were 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. I think there is a shift that bodes well. Um, we'll see though, because the question is, what? where does it rank in people's priorities amid mm -hmm. everything else? And you know, you only have so much political capital and can you lean on Joe Manchin to do something to get this act over the top? Or are you going to put that capital elsewhere? Or are you going to not mm. spend it at all because you're concerned about, you know, losing mm. face on some other front? We'll see because they, they it's, it's not easy for them, even if they wanted to do it 100 percent. It's not easy for them. We'll see. But Biden has done more for the PRO Act than Obama did for the big labor bill of, of 2009, the Employee Free Choice Act. So we'll see. I, like I said, I, I would love to come on in six months and eat crow with you. I don't foresee this act passing, by the way. I just don't see yeah. it. We'll see. Yeah. All right, Matt Carp, man. Thank you so much yeah, for coming on, man. Please tell the people where they can find you. Pimp your work, please, brother. This was fantastic. 
All right. Thanks a lot, man. I wish the only thing I missed is we didn't get any nineties NBA analogies. I got to work yeah. on those next time. <laughs> I got to come up with who the, who like the, you know, who like the yeah. Carl Malone and, oh, and, yeah, and uh, Charles Barkley of American politics are. I had that, um, my, the proudest thing I ever did. Cause you guys, cause you, I know you guys do NBA is, is that the power forward political compass where you had, you know, like right comp, you know, authoritarian, libertarian. Oh, yeah. And I had just all NBA power forwards where you had, because they all fit perfectly. Anyway, okay. I'm working on that masterpiece. Wait, we'll come it, back and discuss it. it. Okay, please. Yeah, because I need to know this. Yeah. I need yeah. to know this. I would say, like, guys, for those listening at home, Carp writes, how many pieces of Jacobin and Jacobin do you write a year? Like four or five, maybe? Uh, I hope I'm trying to bring that number down and do actual work. Fewer pieces. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you write four or five pieces yeah. a year, but each one is like an event. It's like everyone has to stop <laughs> what they're no. doing and read it. It's not like one of these like daily takes. It's like, you know, once every two or three months, there's a new card piece. I gotta uh, write my power forward piece. Okay. I'll yeah, write. that one's gonna be the next one. So look out for that. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. All right, Matt. Be good. Thanks. Take it easy.